Welcome to another podcast for Learning Courage. My name is Jamie Forbes, and I am the CEO here, and I'm here with my colleague, Amy Wheeler, who is the Executive Director. Welcome, Amy. Hi, Jamie. It's great to be here with you today. We're going to be talking today about six key learnings that schools really need to understand when they're dealing with cases of historic sexual misconduct. This is informed in part by our own experience. We're both survivors of sexual misconduct from our boarding schools. And it's also informed by many conversations with survivors, and it's backed up by research as well. So at this point, we just want to give a trigger warning to the listeners to let them know that we're going to be sharing some personal stories that relate to sexual misconduct. And for some people, that might give them certain reactions. And we want to make sure that people are taking care of themselves as they listen to this podcast. Thanks, Amy. That's really important always. As Amy mentioned, we're we're talking mostly uh, about our findings based on historic misconduct. Many of the things, however, that we talk about are also relevant for school leaders who are dealing with student-on-student or other incidents. Uh, But again, our focus today is really on um, schools responding to historic misconduct abuse. And Jamie, I'm just wondering, for the purposes of Clarity, if you could, and Foundation, if you could share a little bit about your own experience as a through line for this conversation, I think it might help ground the conversation for people. Sure. So I was sexually abused in the summer before my freshman year of high school by a male teacher at Milton Academy. The abuse started when I was on a bike trip in Italy, and it continued when my abuser was my advisor during the academic year. I'm really sorry to hear that that was your experience, Jamie. And I'm wondering if you could share with us what happened to you later when you chose to go back to Milton Academy and try to rebuild a relationship of broken trust that existed while you were there. Yeah. So as happened with many schools, Milton Academy chose to send out a letter to the community Immediately after the Boston Globe Spotlight team wrote a a lengthy article about really the epidemic of what it claimed was an epidemic of sexual misconduct at independent schools. I received that letter in 2016, right after the article, and chose to ultimately disclose my abuse to the school. And that sent me down a path that was really unknown to me. I didn't know how I would feel going back to the place that had broken my trust so many years ago. I didn't know how the school would react. I didn't know what they would find in their investigation, obviously. And I didn't know how the school, how transparent the school would be in sharing their findings. So it was a very challenging period of time. And it was about nine months before the investigation ended and the school sent out a summary of their findings. And I think you articulate something so important, which is that it's an individual decision about whether they're ready to come forward and talk with the school that perpetrated the harm. And there's a whole host of different emotions that go along with it. And you talk about the anxiety and the fear and the stress. There's also often a lot of shame that goes with that. So it's so important for school leaders to understand 
that once a person comes to you, there's been an entire process that they've had to go through that gets them ready to be able to take the bold step of coming forward and sharing their story with you. And that background information you may not be privy to, but it's just important to understand the context and the significance of what it is for someone to come forward many, many years later and share something that they may or may not have ever told someone. It's such an important point. I think in particular, it's so valuable for school leaders to understand the role of shame in a survivor experience. That is certainly one of the universal experiences that survivors have, and it is so deep and ingrained. And in fact, in my experience, I didn't even understand how ashamed I was. It, it continues, in fact, to occur to me this day. And uh, you know, mm-hmm. in fact, several months ago, Amy, where you, you made an observation to me, which made me realize that I was actually omitting a part of my story when we were speaking with the school. And part of the reason was because of my own personal shame. So it even for people like Amy and I who have done you know, admittedly, a lot of counseling, therapeutic support and have worked really hard on our trauma and the overall impact of that trauma, we still are discovering and, and uncovering different, different aspects of that shame. Before we get into the six key learnings, there's something that occurs to me as I think about my own experience of going back to my high school and talking with them about my abuse experience. Thinking about where that initial conversation happens is important. For some survivors, coming back to school is not a comfortable or safe thing. So as school leaders are considering offering up an opportunity to have a conversation with a survivor, giving them some choice and agency and how and where they meet is really important since for so many survivors, that agency was taken away, especially by the institution. So I think it's really important as a preliminary step to be really thoughtful and considerate about where you want to meet and what you offer up to the survivor. Yeah, that is a really great point. And so in fact, asking the individual where they would feel comfortable meeting is a really great starting point. Because for example, I uh, ended up meeting the head of school in his office. I didn't really give it much thought. As it turned out, the head of school's office. It was in fact an English classroom. So it had a positive feeling for me, but for many others, and just being in the space of the individual with all of the power really sends us a very strong signal that could feel very challenging for the individual who's really going to great lengths to come back to the school. And for me, I wanted to meet off campus. And so I think we had very different experiences that way. And I think it just raises the issue that it's important to consider that as a head of school or as the school leader that's meeting with the survivor to make sure that you give them an option. In addition to the kind of preparation work that people need to do to come and speak with a member of the institution where the harm was committed, it's also important to remember that different people are on in a different place in their own survivor journey. Some people may have done a lot of their own counseling and processing work and other people may not. Some people may have just come to terms with the fact that they recognize that they were abused at the school. So it's a journey. The healing is a journey. And we can't make any sort of assumptions about where someone is on that path. And the fact is that it's not a linear path. Just like our six findings are universal in terms of being things that survivors need for their healing process, they don't necessarily need them in the order that we're presenting them. And they may need them or they can be delivered by the school in a different way than we may be presenting. So it's, it's really just about 
the concepts and and adapting them in ways and meeting essentially the survivor where they where they are and taking the lead of the individual as opposed to trying to be very methodical overly prescribed about it because that that is in fact could be counterproductive and rarely is it just one conversation that the school ends up having with the survivor there's often subsequent conversations that exist right now we're talking about the preliminary conversation where the survivor is coming face to face with someone from the institution after reconciling or in the process of reconciling historic abuse. It's also important to note that if as a school leader or the individual meeting with a survivor, you don't hit on all of these pieces, all of these findings at once, um, you haven't blown it. There's an opportunity to come back and revisit these. So while it's ideal that all of these are part of the initial conversation, what's really important is that they are part of the conversation at some point. Why don't you talk about the first step and what's really important for a survivor to hear when they have that conversation with that head of school or that school representative? Sure. Well, the first thing really is being believed. Believing the individual and recognizing that the harm they experienced is real is absolutely critical. So frequently, unfortunately, survivors are met when they tell their story. They're met with questions about whether or not they'd been drinking or what they were wearing or other things. And what's really important when listening to stories is just being there as you might be for a good friend who you care for and love, and you want to understand what happened. It's a very frequent experience for survivors to be afraid that they're not going to be believed. And oftentimes that fear of not being believed is something that inhibits them from speaking in the first place. So it's so important that you genuinely and sincerely say to them that you believe them and that you believe that what happened to them is real. And there's no question about that in your conversation with them. It's very, very important. So the other thing is just acknowledging not only that it was real, but what happened was wrong and it was not your fault. So much of the Absolutely. survivor experience, and again, it comes down to shame, is the survivor somehow feeling as though what happened was their fault or they had some role in either inviting the abuse or some other factor. And it's so important for a survivor to hear that it wasn't their fault. So Jamie, at this point, it would be great to hear how that experience was for you when you went to Milton. What happened in terms of those two pieces of process? Well, as, as you can imagine, I had a lot of anxiety about how that conversation would go because I just, I didn't know how the school would react and I was really nervous. And the first thing that the head of school said to me was, I don't know what you're going to share with me, but I just want to let you know that I'm sorry. I'm sorry for what happened and I'm sorry for the harm that it caused. And that was really profound because, well, first of all, it, it touches on the, the first three, really, of our findings, the believing, the acknowledgement, and the apology. And immediately disarmed me because I didn't have to wonder whether I was going to be believed. He was communicating to me that I, he would believe me. He had already said, I'm so sorry. 
And he had acknowledged, at least implied, that what happened was wrong and it wasn't my fault. That must have been an incredibly powerful experience for you, Jamie. It was, and it set the tone for a very different kind of conversation than I thought we would have. Not necessarily in the content, but it really just put me at ease in a in a way that you know I, I felt in my in my body. I was able to relax. And, you know, I was still anxious and unsure of how things would go, but it really, it was very disarming in a very, in a positive way. Why was it so important for you to hear the apology? I'm just, I just think it's important to build on that for a moment. First of all, for my own shame, it was really important for, you know, that 13 year old to hear that the school had some responsibility in how it responded mm. and how it protected me and the school's failure for for doing that and hearing that particular you know at any time but in particular at the beginning of the conversation again just made me feel like I didn't need to extract that in the conversation it was already off mm-hmm. and and it mm-hmm. it just provided a level of comfort and ease that was transformative for me Mm. And I would have to to add to that, that when someone who's in that position of power acknowledges the responsibility was not yours, that it was the school's, that's a profound thing. And I think for a lot of survivors, they're concerned that the school is going to deny or try to protect themselves because they're worried about legal ramifications. And so when someone comes in in a position like a head of school and acknowledges that the school failed you in that moment, it is quite disarming. And then I think in addition, the compounding impact of the, the shame that you may have brought into that room, meeting with that head of school and feeling some sense of responsibility or that was this your fault? Did you do something that may have made this happen? All of those insecurities that go through a survivor's mind to then be told that what happened to you was wrong and that it wasn't your fault certainly is an incredibly meaningful and powerful message for you as an adult, but also for that 13-year-old self that needed to hear that message back a long time ago. That's so right. And another point that we haven't talked about is the is the role of trust in these conversations. And anyone who has been abused at, at an independent school or, or really anywhere where there was an institution involved, there's a broken trust, not just with the perpetrator, but with the institution. If they didn't do what they were supposed to do or needed to do to support the individual at the time. And so Todd was really in my conversation with him, rebuilding trust in using the words that he he, he used by taking accountability, by apologizing for acknowledging and for believing me. Those were all parts of rebuilding trust with me as an individual. And I'll just speak from my own experience. I was 17 when my abuse happened. And when I went back and spoke with the head of school, I too was lucky enough to have someone who acknowledged what that what happened to me was wrong and was not my fault who believed me and who also apologized. And I have to say, I could imagine a situation where a leader might say those things and they might feel empty and shallow, and they didn't. They really felt very genuine and heartfelt. And so the most important thing is that these messages are given in an authentic and heartfelt way to the survivor. It's not enough to check a box and to say, I believe you, it wasn't your fault and it was wrong. 
and I'm sorry. That way of saying it is is very dismissive. And so it's very important that whoever is meeting with the survivor is coming from a place of genuine, authentic, and real compassion. I think that's such an important point, not just because it's what the survivor needs, but also because just to acknowledge, these are challenging conversations and the stakes are high, particularly as a if you're a leader going into these conversations, you you may or may not have experience having these conversations. Obviously, you want to do the right thing. You want the survivor to feel your authenticity and finding the words that feel authentic to you are absolutely critical because survivors, when they enter these conversations, are looking for evidence that they can't trust the organization, that the relationship it hasn't changed, that the institution is not going to care for them. So examples of or evidence of not being able to trust would be feeling as though the person doesn't really mean it or it feels scripted. And so it's really important for the individuals as as they prepare for these conversations to to rehearse, to really think about how to say it in a way that feels natural as opposed to scripted. We're going to take a quick break now. When we come back, we will talk about the three more key findings in how schools can support survivors when they're dealing with historic abuse cases. Our mission at Learning Courage is to give schools the tools and guidance they need to keep students safe from sexual misconduct and help them respond when incidents do occur. We're a nonprofit membership organization that partners with schools to save them time, money, and most important, to reduce harm. Our member schools recognize that keeping students safe requires everyone in the community. We are a survivor-centered organization because we know that caring for survivors is in the best interest of schools and individuals. Learn more about becoming a member school by visiting our website at www.learningcourage.org. Welcome back. I'm Jamie Forbes, and I am here with my colleague, Amy Wheeler, to talk about six key learnings about sexual misconduct and how leaders can support survivors when they are dealing with incidents of historic sexual misconduct. So, Jamie, right before the break, you mentioned something about accountability. You talked about how that was an important component for you, and that is the the fourth key learning. Can you speak a little bit more about what that means? Sure. And accountability is something, well, it's absolutely critical for survivors to hear. And it may not be that schools can offer that initially, because sometimes what's required is schools really understanding where they failed students. And so before an investigation, for example, they may not know all of the details. In my case, it was really after the investigation where the school's failings were identified and identified really in a public way, in print, and also in subsequent conversations with with me. When it comes to accountability, part of what comes up for me is that schools have a decision to make when they're doing an investigation about how they want to communicate their findings. So depending on where the school is in the process, whether this conversation is happening prior to an investigation being done or after an investigation being done, there may be a different way to respond and take accountability for the school's actions. For example, in my case, the school did an investigation. Um, My conversation happened before the investigation. And then there was a paragraph or two summary of the investigation, which felt unsatisfying to me as a survivor to have such a short report that came out. Schools since, I think, have discovered that it's beneficial to have a more transparent process. 
but that's really up to the individual school to handle and may speak to the level of accountability they can or choose to take. You know, I think it's a great point also because it relates directly to trust. So transparency can support trust. And as in Amy's experience, reading a summary, and in fact, at Milton did the same thing, reading a summary of what was likely a 50 or more page document that the school received from the investigation. When you're trying to build trust with survivors, it's much better to reveal as much as possible, share as much as possible. And obviously there's some privacy and other things that are not going to be shared, but the more that can be disclosed about the findings and the more transparent those disclosures are the better really for survivors and and I would submit the the broader community. And I would say if you are speaking with survivors before the investigation is completed and you know how you're going to be reporting, it's helpful to just give them some insight into that so you can help manage their expectations. Right. So Number five is survivor support. And this is really important because it actually reinforces the accountability and apology and acknowledgement that are part of this process. And by survivor support, we're really referring to the school identifying not only that they're taking responsibility for its failures, but also identifying for individuals who have been harmed, what kind of support they will provide, whether it's therapeutic support or or other. It's really important for the school to be clear about what they are doing for survivors. It's really part of demonstrating that what they've said is is in fact the truth. If you've said that you're sorry, if you said you acknowledge the harm that you've caused, it's only natural that you would want to actually care for the individual with providing support. So one of the ways that schools do that is some schools decide to set up a survivor fund that can contribute to therapeutic costs, past therapeutic costs for survivors. Not every school is capable of doing that, but many schools have chosen to do that. And it can really go a long way in demonstrating a commitment and an understanding for the long-term effects of sexual abuse on survivors. And so for so many survivors, survivors, they need therapy to help process what happened to them. There may be impact on their life and their work after the abuse. And when schools offer funds to help support therapy, not only is it financially incredibly helpful, it also demonstrates a commitment to the psychological impact of sexual abuse. And schools can then decide how much are they willing to contribute and and those sorts of things. There's some important decisions schools need to make on how they will set those parameters and who manages those funds and things like that. But it is a very common response for many schools to provide a place where survivors can receive funds for therapy. I think it's important to just bookmark here a myth that exists when we talk about survivor support. Many schools may fear that talking about support will lead them down a path of making large payments to individuals. And I have yet to talk to a survivor who came forward solely for the opportunity to reap financial benefit. What we're really trying to communicate here is that by being proactive in talking about financial support, you're actually communicating very strongly to the individual and the broader community that you're, you want to do all you can to take care of those individuals who have been harmed. And by not talking about it, you're actually opening yourself up to conversations that may in fact have much greater financial consequence than just, for example, therapy, because you're aggravating the individuals by not acknowledging the harm and taking responsibility and accountability for that harm. 
I also think this is where the cycles of recovery come in. You may have an initial conversation as a school leader with a survivor and they're sharing their story with you and you believe, acknowledge, apologize, and take accountability for what happened to them. And it could be that they feel satisfied after that conversation. And then a year or two later, they come back and say that they feel like they could use some support from the school. So I think it's important to recognize that these conversations are not always one conversation and that a survivor's journey is not linear, as as you said earlier, Jamie. That's a great segue actually into the sixth finding, which is a demonstrated commitment to reduce harm in the future. So of course, all of these things are useful to communicate as quickly as possible in the process of communicating with survivors, but there's an ongoing need to demonstrate commitment into the future. And it's not just supporting the individuals, but it's demonstrating to the broader community that the school is committed to protecting current and future students from harm. Absolutely. That's an incredibly important step for the school. So after the acknowledgement and the demonstrated belief in what you've said as a survivor and the apology and the accountability and the survivor support is a demonstration that the school is going to do all they can to prevent other people from experiencing what you experienced as a survivor. And that commitment is not a one-time commitment. This is an ongoing commitment by the institution to keep kids safe and to have conversations around student safety, well-being. In fact, I would argue that this, we'll just call it number six, the demonstrated commitment to reduce harm in the future is something that oftentimes is number one on survivors' list of priorities when they go back to the school. It it can be, in fact, the reason that they are coming back because they want to make sure that what happened to them doesn't happen to students today or tomorrow. Absolutely. So at this point, I think it's good to recap what the top six key findings are to make sure that it's clear what those are. The first thing is to believe the individual that the harm they experienced is real. The second is acknowledgement that what happened was wrong and was not their fault. The third is an apology. They're sorry that this happened to you. The fourth is accountability, that schools need to take responsibility for their role in student trauma. The fifth is demonstrating survivor support, that the school needs to take responsibility for its failures by providing support for survivors. And the sixth is a demonstrated commitment to reducing harm in the future. These are really important key steps for school leaders as they navigate historic misconduct cases. We hope this podcast has been helpful for those who are going through this process or anticipating that it might be a conversation you'd have in the future. And Amy, it's been really great to discuss these topics with you. And I really appreciate your help bringing these to light. Oh, it's been a pleasure having this conversation with you, Jamie. And of course, this is just the tip of the iceberg, but we hope it'll be helpful to schools and school leaders as they navigate this really complicated and incredibly important topic. Thank you for joining our podcast. Please check out our other podcasts at learningcourage.org forward slash podcasts. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you again next time. 